morning, South by, and welcome to our panel discussion, Connected Rail Mobility from Across the Pond, with uh, case studies from the United States and Germany and Switzerland. My name is Olivia. I'm from the Embassy of Switzerland, based in Washington, D.C., and I'll be the moderator today. Now, I have to admit that uh, today I'm replacing a colleague, Penny, but in exchange, I got this cool thing. So it's a pretty good bargain, if you ask me. And now I would like to introduce the speakers for today. So first, Annalyn Smith from Amtrak, who is the Vice President of Strategy and Planning. And then we have Ulrich Leister from Deutsche Bahn Echo North America, the CEO, sorry. And Martin Ritter, President and CEO of Stadler Rail USA. Now today with my colleagues, we are so happy to be able to share with you some expertise and knowledge about connected rail mobility, also with concrete examples of our three countries and when we address the future of rail, how do we make sure that it is done in a way that ensures sustainable um, urban development. Now, Annalyn will uh, start the discussion presenting on Amtrak and also specifically on how the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law has enabled her company to expand across the country. I will give you the word, thank you. Thank you, Olivia. Good morning, everyone. Again, Anna Lynn Smith from Amtrak. How many folks here in the audience are familiar with Amtrak? Everybody, yay. How many folks have ridden on Amtrak? Almost everybody, yay, this is awesome. Okay, so we'll do a little bit of context setting in our first slide here. We do have a, a brief slide deck to go through. And this is our new era of rail. Here we are. We're very excited, and I, I can't wait to share some of the exciting things we're doing on our next slide. Gives you a little bit of a, a, a fact snapshot of, of who we are, what we do. More than 40 routes in the United States. Uh, we have 21,400 route miles, um, over 300 weekday trains, and we serve a lot of communities in the US, 46 states plus the District of Columbia and Canada, and we have um, 20,000 employees, and we're growing. I'm going to talk about that. Um, we did see a dip in our ridership over the pandemic. Um, we're coming back out of that. About 32,000, or sorry, 32 million riders annually, and very excited to say that our ridership is coming back in this new era of rail. <coughs> so our last fiscal year, what's important to note here of interest is that nearly one-third of our riders out of um, 22.9 million are new. New people experiencing Amtrak for the first time, and it, it's our job, it's our responsibility to kind of hook them in and, and make them passengers for life. Uh, we've added or restored over 11, ser um, 11 services, and this, the hiring is, is, in, is very intense for us right now. I'm very excited to um, you know, be part of, I'm a new employee to Amtrak, and um, hiring um, 4,000 people this year is always our goal. Um, so spoiler alert, we're hiring. We did have um, a booth in the pavilion, um, but I will we'll say, reach out to my colleague Mariah or myself if you're interested in jobs at Amtrak. <laughs> Unabashedly uh, shame-free here. And um, just in terms of the, the, the funding, and then something I'll touch on is that we're at a unique point in our history with the, the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure law and the incredible amount of funding that we have at hand, the responsibility that we have to deliver. 
So with that funding comes an incredible responsibility. We are um, I, we all focused and driven on rebuilding our business, bringing back what we had prior to the pandemic. Um, we did what we call mothball some of our equipment during the pandemic, and we're bringing back the staff and the, the cars that were in service. So that is a top priority for us. Right now, our ridership demand is such that we don't have the capacity on our trains to, to fill. We are selling out trains during peak times, and we need to provide more capacity to meet that demand. So that's a top priority of ours right now. Um, coupled with the fact that we have this funding in hand, it's a unique opportunity for us to modernize our assets. Um, we look at it in several buckets in terms of our facilities, our fleet, which are our trains, as well as our stations, as well as the infrastructure that we run on. And um, yeah, it's, we have the funding and, it, and it's our opportunity to deliver. And we can't do this alone. We're doing this through um, partnerships, partnerships with the industry, partnerships with state and local and federal officials. And it, it, it takes a, a village to, to pull this all off. And so we're, we're building partnerships um, and, and looking to you to help us uh, get the word out about passenger rail in the United States. So here's, here's our... Amtrak Joe, um, a great supporter of Amtrak. Um, he's uh, been, we've, we've been uh, grateful to have him come to uh, several um, events recently, you know, ribbon, not ribbon cuttings, but announcing some of our big projects, some of our big infrastructure projects in the US. So 66 billion, this is a very, it's unprecedented, the, the, um, the amount here. The 66 billion represents more than the first 50, our 51 years of investment, the money we've had combined, this, this 66 billion. So this is gonna last us over the next five years, and it's broken down into two buckets. The first is this 22 billion is, is, is focused on investing. It's dedicated to Amtrak, and this is what we need to um, improve and upgrade what we already have. The remaining 44 billion is used, it's called discretionary grants, meaning that um, it's, it's a process we go through, we apply for, and we compete. We partner with other entities like states or commuter railroads to, to get that money, and it's a competitive process. So here's a, an inspirational video about Amtrak. Within a century, people in America move by rail. They travel faster here than anywhere in the world. 140,000 miles of track connecting cities from coast to coast. But somewhere along the way, our transportation policies got us stuck in traffic. Not anymore. Thanks to Congress and the administration, a once in a generation investment in rail is beginning. And Amtrak is ready. We're rolling up our sleeves to get to work to transform our transportation system, adding service, putting new routes on the map with state and federal partners to connect thriving cities and towns, building stronger and more resilient infrastructure, introducing a new state-of-the-art sustainable fleet made in America, modernizing our stations and making them accessible to all, connecting us with the people we love and the communities that bring us together. We're creating a greener transportation network and we're growing the economy while we're at it powered by thousands of new, good jobs. The stakes are great. The potential, limited only by our collective will to act. 
to deliver on the promise we make to future generations that we will leave this place better than we found it. The new era for rail has begun. Join us. So that's, hope you find that inspiring as well. So um, where we are, so now what? What we've been bestowed upon, um, as money's been provided to us, it's our responsibility to deliver on it, to prove to Congress, to prove to the American people that we can actually get it done. So if we go to, here we go. So here's our focus. As I mentioned, we're looking to modernize our assets and serve more people. Um, in serving more people, we're looking to double our ridership and going from 32 to 64 million by roughly 2040. And it also has to be done in a way that's green and sustainable to meet our country's climate and mobility needs. So in the next slide are our assets, um, what we're doing to modernize them in terms of stations. We're looking in terms of technology, making the customer experience seamless, easy, understandable, and then multimodal connections within the, uh, you know, when you get off, how do you get to the station? Or is it easy enough to, to get to the station? And then what do you do for your first or last mile? If you know from a transportation planning lingo, how do you get to your final destination? Making that as seamless and easy as possible. So in terms of our, our story, rail is one of the most efficient ways to travel. It's a green way to travel. A couple um, fun statistics, we can go to the next slide here, is that we are pledging to go to net zero emissions by 2045, and we're pushing the development of a net zero initiative. Um, and this is part of our company-ride resilience program, making sure that when we design a new facility, a station, any improvements, that they're done in a way to, to best withstand climate change. So in terms of more trains for more people, this is kind of our mantra. This is a map you may have seen. It was released in 2021. Talking about um, the new routes that we hope to start, the routes that we hope to enhance, and what we're looking to do in terms of adding ridership. So it gives you a kind of a snapshot of what we're, what we're going towards. It may not be our ultimate end game, but just to give you a sense of where we are and what we're looking to do in terms of new corridors. So what we need you to do if there are corridors that you know, resonate with you or in your particular community to get out and talk with your elected officials, um, your mayors, others to, to support passenger rail in your particular state or region. So this is a process, just really briefly, in terms of the corridor identification process. Um, this is one of those discretionary grants that I talked about. Um, we are partnering right now with over 20 states to advance this, these applications, either leading and or supporting them. They're actually due March 27th. And we're excited to work with folks to, to be able to advance um, the, the resilient nature of rail throughout the US. And so this just gives an example of, of uh, on the map here of what's going on in, in Texas in terms of the corridor identification process. So with that, again, we'll put out the plug for hiring if you are interested. Um, here's our website, and please feel free to reach out to Mariah or myself if you'd like to. Uh, we'll be around after the session to, uh, to talk about employment. Okay, cool. Well, perfect. Thank you so much, Annaline, for this very informative overview of both Amstrak's ambition, but also the bipartisan infrastructure law. And now, out of courtesy, I will start with Germany. 
Um, can you tell us a bit more about German government policies, how it has helped assist um, your operations, and also the drive of Deutsche Bahn to expand into the US market? Of course, thank you very much. So, uh, great to be here, first of all. Uh, I am with DB ECHO North America. ECHO stands for Engineering, Consulting, and Operations. So in a company that really pretty much is uh, in Germany, we are this tiny group that uh, is active internationally in bringing our expertise uh, to other places. And on the policy front, I think first of all, what has really helped over the last few years really is that drive to sustainability and emission reductions becoming from a nerd topic to a mainstream and critical topic. Because public transportation for a long time was, you could say, the looked down on mode of transportation, particularly in a country like Germany where you have a very strong auto uh, industry. Uh, I won't point out the sponsor of the transportation <laughs> track here, but uh, when I went through university, uh, there was a, like the, the ambitious jobs were with the auto industry and like the transportation sector. Uh, that has changed. You see people who seek purpose, they want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And we see public transportation just very differently today. What hasn't changed is the emissions in the transportation sector over the last 30 years. They're still the same. And that's to a large degree because we're still doing the same thing with transportation overall and have the road traffic that we always had even more. And here I think with a few policies I want to highlight, we'll, we will see change in the next 10 to 15 years. We will see that change. The public is demanding much better, much more service and politics have, this is my very personal assessment, I think are slowly being serious with this topic. It's no longer just like a, a nice speech topic, but we see real action, and including Amtrak's net zero commitment. I mean, this is a very recent development, and these are big, uh, big steps and complicated steps. So a few policies that I think make the public transportation in Europe and specifically in Germany, and some of that applies to Switzerland and Austria as well, so successful. Uh, one of them, and the, really the top of my list, is the integration of public transportation that has happened in especially the German-speaking countries starting in the 1970s, where in mega-regions, public transportation services were merged. They were put together so that from a customer perspective, you no longer had to choose between like individual fragmented services and lines. You had a network. And you had a single ticket, very simple ticketing. You had a designated single agency that was the face to the customer. And that was also responsible for the overall product that it made sense. These are very simple statements, but they have big impact. And in areas, and in a lot of areas, unfortunately, of the US, this is not the case, and you see the effects of that. That you have maybe a single rail corridor that has good service, but the bus does not connect to it, and all, all the things I could go through a lot here. So 
from my point of view, this was an extremely important development and policy that helped to maintain demand. That's a, that was a challenge for a long time, and then really set the groundwork to expand and expand the usefulness of networks and thus how people use it, because suddenly it was a useful option. A second, I think, very important policy in Germany is that federal funds, federal tax revenues, continued to pay for the lion's share of uh, expansion projects and investments in local and regional and uh, cross-country rail corridors and other public transportation networks. And that's unlike to the U.S. It's changed now, and this is, I mean, it, it, you can't overstate the importance of that, but for a long time in the U.S., the federal government was uh, investing only minimal funds or even being, you could say, absent. And one condition that is very important for the German policy to work of this high level of federal funding, by law, each project has to be economical. That doesn't mean it has to be profitable. It has to be economical in the sense that the macroeconomic benefits outweigh the cost. And then the project qualifies for funding. Of course, the funding sources are overcommitted as well, but it's not uh, like a moonshot to get the funding and get the projects built, get projects like a second cross-city tunnel in Munich built, have a complete uh, re-innovation of the transportation public transportation in Stuttgart and other areas. Like these big complicated projects are getting built because the federal government picks up 70 to 90% of the cost. Then thirdly, equally important is that the federal government supports the service, not just building stuff, but actually running service. It's supported generously as well. And that change has happened in 1996 with uh, new laws and reorganization then, so that federal funds are flowing to the individual states, and the states then define what they need, and they procure these services. And that has led to the states significantly expanding their networks, the frequency of their service, and introducing, alongside what I said first, the integration high-frequency, well-integrated, useful networks in their regions. Then as a fourth topic that I think is quite important is that, and that's recent, and it's actually inspired. I'm looking over to, well, I should over left and right, this, the Swiss inspiration, that the expansion of our network will be guided by a long-term network vision. And that's different to before. Before, there were projects, corridors, and there were projects built that were economical but didn't fit very well into the network. So that has changed now with a long-term vision being defined. How do we run, want to run our service in 10 years, in 20 years? And we, too, are uh, expecting that we double our ridership uh, by 2030. However, already, that's going to happen with well-connected, frequent service across the country, guided by a vision that we define today, how we are going to run this. Are the services running every hour, every half an hour? Where 
where, ha where do we have to have the important connections to make this work as, an, as a network? And then build in on top of that systematically capacity for freight operators to crisscross the country and the continent in Europe. So that I think is extremely important to have that clear vision and then derive exactly what you build and focus your attention on the critical projects that you have to get built. And that especially in the US as well in the conversations I have here, there's a tendency sometimes to try to build the easy stuff but the easy stuff always, often doesn't get you very much. And, it, and sometimes you have to really focus your attention and your funds on this one bottleneck where you have some very difficult things to, to figure out, but you'll unlock a huge ability to, to run more service. Then there was a big experiment last year as part of really the disruptions with all the measures against COVID. We, tried a flat rate for countrywide uh, use of our services, the local and regional rail services with which you can run or can go through the entire country. Uh, for nine euros, equivalent roughly about nine dollars, you were able to take any train anytime you wanted for an entire month. And that was a game changer. It changed the conversation, it brought huge crowds to the trains, which was a challenge. Like we as an operator weren't all happy about it in the beginning because it, it, it was tough, but we managed it and saw ridership ex exceed pre-COVID levels during these months with just people um, crisscrossing the country. And that was for three months, the three summer months last year, changed the conversation and led to now the introduction of a $49 or 49 euros uh, flat rate uh, to be introduced permanently. So that means if you get a monthly ticket in Berlin and you are on a trip to Munich, you don't need to worry about tickets. Like that was, that's now this simplification and integration concept expanded to the entire country. And then we too have a state of good repair um, challenge and are investing now heavily and in a different way in repairing our physical infrastructure. Um, we have seen quite a few performance issues over the last few years, uh, mainly because of the infrastructure not being in the shape that it needs to be and because of overuse of our network. There's, there were simply and are still simply too many trains and the reliability, the on-time performance is not where people expect it to be and where they really deserve it to be as well. So we will now change really the regiment of uh, fixing that. In the past, we tried to, to do as much as we could. Now we'll shut down entire corridors and completely renovate them. And that's going to take half a year. Uh, but then you reopen it, it's going to be painful that half a year. It's not impossible because the network is dense so you can reroute trains and you're not like completely shutting down service, but uh, it's, it has impacts. However, when you reopen, uh, you'll, it is like a new infrastructure where for the, for the first decade and two decades you have almost no issues. Um, and then also um, you got to do a better job of maintaining it uh, from then on out. 
Your second part of the question I want to briefly uh, respond to is what's driving us to expand outside of Germany. Exactly. Which is, yeah. a, which is a, a good point. As I said before, we're a German company. 99% of our operation is naturally in Germany as the national carrier of the country. And our focus is clearly on providing excellent mobility and transportation services in Germany. That's our mission. Um, we have a side mission, I would say, to be also an important tool for the German government and society to address sustainability uh, concerns and uh, be a solution to reducing emissions in the transportation sector. And that's where really our small group comes in. Um, worldwide, we're about 6,000. Here in the US, we're really just a group of 100. Um, so we're a small consulting and engineering uh, company. We help, of course, our own country by gaining insights into international trends, but also our purpose is clearly to share our knowledge and our expertise from Germany with fellow transportation uh, actors, because we work a lot with public agencies, also with individual railroads, to share our knowledge and get all of us in the best position to operate uh, strong, good public transportation and be a solution to reducing emissions. And that's what we do here in the US. It's a very fascinating market. I've been active here for almost 10 years now. Um, there is so much to do on the passenger side and it's so exciting that now the, the, the funds are being committed to actually change that. And there's also a lot to learn here for us, uh, specifically on the freight side, where the US has some of the world's best railroads. Thank you, Ulrich. Uh, actually, I remember very well the um, Deutsche Bahn operation with nine euros. It had tremendous echo in Switzerland, and it made it really hard for the SBB, so the, the Swiss uh, railway um, industry, because people are like, where is our 10 francs ticket? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but good segue into Switzerland. And then, Martin, could you tell us um, also about some Swiss policies uh, in transport that have made it easier for your business to expand? And then, more importantly, why did Stadler Rail choose the US as a location? Absolutely. <clears throat> well, good morning, and thank you for, for having me um, here in Austin. Um, Martin Ritter, the CEO of Stadler US. Stadler is a Swiss-based or headquartered company. We do have about... 13,500 employees in Europe and 440 in the United States. So we're the only location outside of the continent uh, in Europe. I do also have a question for you. Who has been in Switzerland on a Swiss train? Wow, so we, we have the experts in the room. And now <laughs> I, I also can appreciate that you know what I'm talking about when, when we're going to talk about the, um, the funding mechanism in Switzerland for the rail system. Maybe um, also as a note, Stadler Rail, um, 30 years ago, 32 years ago, we were 18, just below 20 employees. And as I said, we're only over 14,000 employees in the meantime. So there was a lot of growth, not only for Stadler, but also for the rail industry in Europe. And uh, I believe one part is how Switzerland is planning for their rail system. Um, in Switzerland, if we, I try to kind of make it similar or, or explain it in, in U.S. terms, but in Switzerland, DOT, 
DOT is basically responsible for the plan, and the Congress is approving it. So it's a matter of Congress to approve the, the rail plan of Switzerland. The inputs for the DOT is going to collect the inputs from the cantons, which are the states here, from the operators, we have different rail operators, but also from the freight operators. So those three interest groups are having their stake into the rail plan in Switzerland. That's one, one point, the political process, how to get to this long-term plan that Ulrich was talking about. The second key component is that um, DOT has long-term agreement for rail maintenance, so the infrastructure maintenance. 60% of the budget is allocated, fixedly allocated to rail maintenance. And that's a very important part to keep the system reliable and up and running. The third component to the Swiss system is Obviously, some of the routes are subsidized. But how do you subsidize the system and still keep it efficient, as efficient and as effective as possible? It's done in Switzerland by every four years, there is a reassessment of the efficiency or the, the, the potential, commercial potential of the different routes. So they're all, all every four years, they're assessed and challenged as well. In Switzerland, the rail infrastructure is owned by, by the government, and they're, headed, they're heading out. Um, so basically, every train, sorry, every train is paying their share if they use the rail infrastructure. Which means, it's an example how we keep it as efficient as possible as well, as the more trains are running on the rail, the cheaper it is per train. So the players are motivated to actually allow freight to run, allow regional train versus intercity rail to run, because it makes the share that you have to participate into the, the, the system, the, the fair share you have to pay for it, like, makes it less. Also, it does account for efficient, efficient rolling stock. That's what led us, as Stadler in Europe, to, for example, design, we were the first player to design the trains out of aluminum, and reduce the weight for the trains significantly, which means it's less wear and tear on the infrastructure, which means an SPB or a regional operator had to pay less because they had less wear and tear on the infrastructure. So there, it was cheaper for them to run our trains from a fee perspective. Concessions. Because Switzerland owns the rail infrastructure, they do have long-term concessions with the operators which again means as well that you, you keep a certain competition. And again, it doesn't mean, as Ulrich said, that it all, every, every single um, line makes money, but it's still then sometimes it matters how much subsidized, how much does it have to be subsidized versus not. So there is still a competitive approach, but long-term. And also that competitive approach is between long-distance trains, which are usually more profitable than regional trains, and so you keep a, a fair mix between the different modes. Last but not least, the rail infrastructure fund in Switzerland. First, it's not a transit fund, it's a rail infrastructure fund. It does cover $5 billion a year, and it's long-term committed, so it's not this year $5 billion, next year none, etc. If you think we're just short of 9 million people living in Switzerland, I kind of made the math, it would actually be $200 billion a year for rail if you, if you calculate it per citizen in the United States. 
so cool to have 60 plus million billion dollars, but that's how committed Switzerland is. The funding structure is defined as well. How much is, is paid or funded by the government, uh, by the federal government, how much by the cantons, how much is, um, we do have two major contributors. One is the value added tax, sales, sales tax concept, and the, the last one is the gas tax. So gasoline tax, gas is expensive in Europe, it's mostly paying basically for, uh, for the transit system as well as for uh, the heavy freight on the highways. They're also paying an extra tax to fund, cross-fund basically the freight system on rail. The other thing that's defined, 60% out of this rail fund is for maintaining the infrastructure. 15% is allocated for subsidizing the operations and 25% for growth. And that's fixed. That's fixed so that we, we're, we're kind of forcing our industry to always maintain a system, to always, um, and always think of growth as well. Not only maintain, but also add value to our ridership and go with the growth in Switzerland uh, with those 25% allocated. That's just over a billion dollar per year. What does that mean for Stadler in Europe? And as I mentioned that we have been growing very, very much over the last 30 years, and I think that's one of the key success factors. There is a industry, a sustainable industry in Europe in terms of transit, or as an OEM, in terms of building trains. That makes the trains also more cost effective because our industry doesn't just increase our capacity when there's funding from Congress and then we have empty shops and we have to fire people and we have to hire people again. So it has a positive impact on the quality and it has certainly has a positive impact on the cost as well because it's planable. At the end of the day, it's also good for the reputation because um, for rail, for transit itself, because we maintain the system means we have a very reliable system in Switzerland as well. So it's... Um, it's a very efficient, um, an efficient outcome out of a planning process. To the question why Stadler was choosing uh, the United States as the only continent outside of Europe, we have been doing business in the US from Switzerland. We delivered about five, five trains projects to the US. One, two actually here in Austin. Austin bought trains from Stadler. Um, we have a few in Texas that we have been delivered out of Switzerland. Those were state-funded projects. No Buy America uh, requirements were needed at that point of time. And for us, that was actually a very good, a lucky situation for over 20 years to kind of get to know the market in the United States, uh, the players and how to act and the technology. And then by 2016, we made the decision to um, open a facility and we started to assemble trains in Utah 2017. Uh, the reasons why, by America requirements, so local, local manufacturing, but the second reason as well, and it's certainly COVID and the supply chain, chain and logistic challenges, we're demonstrating it over the last years. There is also a reasonable reason why you want to keep your supply chain close, reduce logistic uh, costs, but also logistical risks, and um, produce locally, actually, with, on top of it, there's a natural hedging from a currency perspective, etc. So there's many economical reasons why we also choose the United States to be here. Okay. Thank you, Martin. And I have to be neutral in this moderation, but indeed I'm very proud of our public um, transportation system. 
And so let me circle back to the bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, and maybe a question again for you too. How might foreign companies like Deutsche Bahn or Stadler Raid quantify the value proposition of this law? And also, um, what are some concrete solutions that you bring to this country to make sure that the future of rail is, um, let's say, assessed in a sustainable way? So I think the, the quantification is really uh, hard for an outsider to do, so to say. I think these are uh, political decisions and societal decisions. Uh, what sort of transportation infrastructure you uh, want for yourself. And I think, um, I mean, I've been here for, been living here for, uh, for a long time by now, so I think at least half American by now. Um, and I, I'd say I, I want choice and freedom, <laughs> big words, and that includes that, uh, that I am able to, to use more than just uh, a car that I need to drive by myself. And of course there are economical things that need to be put in context here as well, but that's part where we do a lot of our consulting and explaining as well. There are ways of running public transportation systems extremely efficiently and very attractively, so to say, like put out an attractive product. And that's where we see so much potential in the US to catch up. Switzerland is a perfect example for that. This is not, the, the transportation system in Switzerland is not rail because the country couldn't afford anything else and would need the, the least energy um, consuming mode. It's, it's really there an overlay to create beautiful cities have a convenient way of traveling between the cities and it being quite efficient and economical. And I think that's still the steep hill to climb in the US and big decisions like the infrastructure law where uh, out of political reasons a lot of money is put at risk to get there are very important to, to create a new reality and that's I think really where I see a big portion to think about public transportation as a tool to create new realities and less as something we think about once a road is congested. In the US, the railroads, the New York subway, the, the whole country was built around railroads and not because there was demand. There was no demand in New York City at the beginning when they built subways out into greenfields, but for developing a new city around those backbones of transportation. And that's, I think, a thinking that is important to, to revitalize how you can build much better functioning places around mass transportation infrastructure, simply because you can fit so much more into a smaller uh, space. And there, I think, is where the, the infrastructure law starts to catch up on some of the deficit that the US has been accumulating on the infrastructure investment side. And it's honestly just, from my perspective, continuing what many of the states in the US already started a longer ago, to start investing more substantially in infrastructure again. Uh, and that's my personal observation. When was that, like 12 years, 13 years ago, when you came into the US as an international visitor and you landed in Los Angeles or New York? Uh, the airports weren't great, to say, put that mildly. Um, 
that has changed already. Like today, Los Angeles has these beautiful terminals. New York has just opened LaGuardia. Newark is like step by step becoming a, 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 an airport that is, is beautiful. However, if you step outside of that airport, you're still greeted by last century's ground transportation. Uh, in Los Angeles, I've heard somebody call that, I don't know if you're, you're probably familiar, but they called it like the seventh circle of hell, um, which I thought was like very fitting um, because <laughs> when you step outside of the terminal, you're in this like fume-soaked, uh, noisy, and really not nice space, and, and then typically you, you wait there for quite some time as well, so you really get to enjoy it. Um, in New York, you're using railroads that are that are based on technology that's simply outdated like this 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 air train thing and then and New Jersey transit uh, like you see really the need for significant investment just to get this to state of the art technology and um, the infrastructure law is the first step to changing that it it brings in the federal funds that are needed to to renew and expand and I think I'm just Pointing that out, the federal funds, if you look at your tax return, the federal tax portion is a big chunk of that. So there is just not that much more space for states to acquire the, and get the funds to build all that. There needs to be federal support. Martin, do you want to react on that? And then we will talk about sustainable, innovative solutions. Absolutely. Um, the, the infrastructure law for us, obviously, we're super excited about it. <clears throat> I think it's very important for the industry, but also us as a car builder. Uh, it's going to take a while till we as a car builder, it trickles down basically, it's in the planning state, it's in the procurement state afterwards, consulting, Ulrich is going to have way more work than we will have yeah. uh, the next two years, <clears throat> but obviously the expectations uh, two years and beyond that there is <clears throat> sorry, a positive impact for us as well. From a risk perspective, I mean at the end of the day at, as an industry, <clears throat> we need to perform. We got a lot of money as an industry and we're being closely looked, and people are going to assess the outcome. And this is going to have an impact whether this is going to be long-term and sustainable, or whether in four or five or six years, Congress is going to say, like, we gave uh, so much money as an industry, and look what you did and or what you didn't do. And that makes it hard to get uh, the next round of funding. So I think <clears throat> as an opportunity for the United States, it is actually to look in a more long-term planning and funding as well as a, as a solution so that we're not only funding uh, four years or, or one year per, per uh, cycle, but we're looking really into maybe a decade or even beyond uh, if we're talking about rail development. Um, I think there's some opportunities as well related to um, the, the infrastructure law to, to subsidize or to support long-term smart decisions over short-term decisions. I'm obviously not the biggest fan of a BRT system because it's um, trying to do the same as rail, but it is uh, from a capital perspective a little bit less expensive in the beginning and it's more expensive in terms of life cycle costs. So how can, especially the federal government, basically helping the, the long-term success and long-term um, costs over short-term gains? Um, yeah, I think those were a few options, and, and especially for what we're bringing as Stadler to the United States in connection with the infrastructure law. Um, we're, we're bringing European design. Ulrich said it, New York um, has, and we're not delivering trains to New York. 
is specifying even their new trains based on relatively old technology. That's one of the concerns we have as a European um, rail car builders. We're looking for trying to bring state-of-the-art rail versus the proven design, which sometimes is also connected to old design, mostly. Um, so the state-of-the-art is an opportunity for us. Sometimes it's hard. Um, we're bringing a customer focus, really focusing on the ridership, getting easy on the train, having access to the train, having uh, light design, having the big windows so you actually see something outside, etc. I mean, there's the, the environment in terms of uh, light on the trains, the HVAC uh, system that it doesn't blow at you but still feels comfortable. I mean, there's details, but we're really looking on or at the customer and how we can increase the ridership of our customers at the end of the day. And we did adapt to the US market. So in Switzerland, 99.9% .9 of the rail line is electrified. In the US, it's exactly the opposite around. We took our uh, multiple units, train sets from Switzerland, and we added um, the propulsion system, whether that is a hydrogen train. We're going <clears> to <throat> welcome the first hydrogen train for the North American uh, continent in about three months here. It's currently tested in Switzerland, and it's going to be shipped over. And we're planning on manufacturing more of those out of the United States for the state of California. And we also uh, just entered into a development agreement with the Utah State University to develop the first uh, battery multiple unit train for North America, which is going to be able to run more than 100 miles just catenary free uh, with the battery system. So. Certainly excited for us for the future, also with the infrastructure law, and also we had obviously to adapt to the fact that we don't have catenary everywhere in the U.S. and it's going to be expensive to build catenary everywhere. So yeah. we're, we're eagerly watching these 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 pilots, these demonstrations to to latch on when appropriate. Thank you. Thank you for this outlook. Uh, now maybe quickly about some concrete solutions from Deutsche Bahn, and then I have one last question for Annalyn. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep this uh, brief and uh, uh, three topics from myself. I I could talk about all the the exciting sustainability uh, uh, hydrogen trains and so forth. I'll I'll give you a glimpse at a video in a moment where you see the equivalent of South by Southwest for the rail industry, which is Innotrans, the uh, biggest like industry gathering in uh, Germany uh, every two years in September in Berlin. Uh, but two boring topics before. Uh, the first one, I just want to tack on to what Martin said. The, the, a, a steady stream of funding, I think, is extremely important. And the infrastructure law now is the opportunity to prove, and it's a challenge, too, to prove that, that this, these are good investments and then hopefully move this over into a world where it's not feast and famine, because that, that just reduces so much the efficiency of the investments if the, the, these huge injections are followed by uncertainty. The, the second thing blows in the same horn to some extent, um, and that's what's worrying me most with, with even the big funding that's available, or the, the huge amounts of funding that is available now, is how how little we get out of this funding today in the U.S. because the cost for infrastructure is so immense in the U.S. compared to other international peer countries. And here, my recommendation is to not only worry today about how to spend all this money, but also get efforts underway to do the necessary research and bring the changes underway so that we're not paying so much 
for each, so to say, element of infrastructure. And to give you just a quick example here, at around the same time, uh, in between 2010 and 2020, there was a subway built in Hamburg and a subway built in New York. From an engineering perspective, they are comparable. They both had to get through uh, very challenging soil, uh, very uh, like overall uh, comparable projects built at around the same time. And if you compare the cost and account for purchasing price parity, Hamburg was 320 million per mile, which as Martin last night pointed out, isn't cheap either. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And New York was 3.2 billion. So that's a factor 10 here. Um, and the risk is that even tens of billions of dollars dissipate without much effect if we don't get this under control. And that's one of our focus areas from DB Echo North America is to open the doors to Germany and to work with um, our clients here to start chipping away from that cost premium and making that a focus area, really. And with that, maybe a more uplifting, quick video um, of uh, InnoTrans, which you certainly should put in your calendar for 2024. Uh, we are DB Echo North America, Deutsche Bahn's team on the ground bringing the German Railroad's expertise, innovations, and technology. I think they'll get the, the, here in a second, yeah. Yeah, we can close with the video. Okay, okay, perfect. So maybe one uh, last question for Annalyn. Um, in terms of um, Amtrak, how do you view the domestic content threshold of the build, of the build, sorry, and about supply chain, how do you make sure that you select the best products and best uh, commercial partnerships? Right, right. So it, it it's probably goes without saying, as a quasi-government entity, we have to go out to bid for our products and services. And so um, we evaluate those based on the technical competency, based on price. Um, but that said, and as we grow through the bipartisan infrastructure law, we need as diverse a supplier base as possible. So we encourage companies like Stadler to come come to the U.S. and, and, and embed themselves so we can have um, that wide variety of manufacturers to choose from for, for products as well as our services. So it's um, one thing I will add just really quick is that one of the challenges we face is that sometimes there's different rules governing how we spend this money depending on if it comes from the Federal Transit Administration with our commuter partners or the Federal Railroad Administration. So that's something that um, we are having discussions with, with DOT leaders. We encourage you to do the same, to have a, a streamlined process or um, set of rules that are followed, because um, that can certainly help in terms, I guess, um, from what, or what you were saying in terms of the efficiency and, and the way you can streamline the advancement of projects. I would encourage those types of conversations to continue to be had. But, but by America, we're, we're, we're building the economy, we're, and we're proud of it, and we, we like to do that in as diverse a way as possible. Perfect. Thank you so much. At this point, we would uh, likely welcome some questions from the audience, so please feel free to walk to the altar. business in uh, North America. Similar to this theme, we have brought a lot of our uh, European best practices in automotive manufacturing and applying them to other industries, so uh, both in rail, aviation, and so forth. 
Uh, I was on a panel yesterday where we talked about robotics and the advancement of uh, innovation and automation in the airport setting and the need to drive that for intermodal travel for both passengers and freight. What role do you see, and I guess maybe this is a question for, for Amtrak, what do you, where do you see yourself in, in helping collaborate to help build that vision so that you can partake? Because I think that they're going to need the, the rail as much as you're going to want to access the rest of their network. I see it from a maybe from a, a labor standpoint in terms of making sure that our um, our, our agreement employees are, are trained and up to speed and ready to go, ready to deploy, and make sure that they um, have access to that training to to be part of that 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 movement or that process, so that um, we can partner with the different technologies as they emerge and become available, and we're not stuck in you know railroad technology from, from two centuries ago, which sometimes seems to be the case for us. Great, thank you. Hello, um, Jay. My question, or more or less my, my being a bit surprised to Deutsche Bahn, what you are describing does not really fit how I experience it. Because when you've been mentioning the nine euro ticket, it was a huge success. But you forget to mention that, uh, for example, for the ICEs, for the express trains, we've not been allowed to use them. Now the huge thing, this, this, this federal uh, um, handling of these, these uh, different uh, tracks concerning um, the 49 euro ticket is against a huge battle or, or let's say a bloodbath for subsidizations <coughs> who will get a bit more. So this is something seen extremely skeptical. During all of these times, Deutsche Bahn, or more or less politically motivated, completely deconstructed the railway. I'm a huge fan of the railway, don't get me wrong. I work in the automotive space. But what you are describing simply does not match. The night trains were eliminated. During the Meridor era, um, more and more tracks were simply being closed. So that the people were simply forced to drive cars instead of public transportation in, in, uh, instead of trains. Uh, I don't want to mention the VIP services for politicians and so on. And now when we see that, for example, the German cycle that was announced in 2018 by the former Ministry for Transportation that should have been finished by 2030, and now is being postponed by the new guy at the power to 2070. I mean, come on, it's a joke. So please explain me how this can be so different. The railway is one of the most important ways to go across Germany or to go across Europe. It's a joke when there are tweaks that you have to buy a train ticket online, let's say from Hamburg to, uh, to Budapest, and then you simply exit in, in, in Munich and you pay half the price. So please tell me what do I not understand how this shiny world that you've been describing, I really hope that it will come like this. Why doesn't it match? So I think there's a lot to unpack, which um, I'm happy to do with you after the sessions here. Maybe just a quick response to a few um, individual things for the nine euro ticket. Yes, that was local and regional trains only. Uh, these, there are decisions that have to be made and how to uh, manage your capacity on the high-speed services in that case were you can, this is simply not uh, feasible to give a flat rate uh, for 
your uh, high-speed services that otherwise a single ticket would cost 50 to 100, 150 euros. Um, the second part, uh, well, there have been a lot here. What, what's the most important you want to get an, another response to? Like, I think... Um, uh, honestly, the most important for me is that it's nice that you try to help in the U.S. I mean, the railway was one of the core enablers to, 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 to explore the U.S., to, to set it up. So it's really beautiful that you try to, to, to do so. But maybe we should start repairing in our own region before we start advising someone else. If I may interrupt, may we bring this conversation after so we have time for the next question? Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Thank you all so much for being here in Austin today. Um, I'm from El Paso, Texas, so like far west. Um, and we share that Amtrak corridor with um, like commercial trains and stuff. So it's just, it's a 16 hour like Amtrak ride to get back to El Paso. It's just not feasible within like a day trip. So like what is next, what are next steps? What can we do to like, not lobby exactly, but talk to like state representatives, whoever controls that to get that a little more streamlined, a little more easier to connect El Paso to like the rest of big old Texas. That's exactly right, that, that there is some benefit to having what can be seen as a regional or a statewide or in the Northeast, an interstate kind of network of passenger rail. So it's, it's what you're saying in terms of reaching out to, to mayors. We find them to be extremely effective in promoting their city and their city's needs, but other elected officials um, promoting the benefits of passenger rail as a green, efficient mobility choice. I understand it is a, a long and arduous ride to El Paso, but um, I, I think you know we're starting where the major population centers are in Texas. That graphic we had up, the Texas Triangle, and some of the other initiatives, um, and, and partnering with with Texas DOT and and private entities as well to to make investments in the passenger rail network here. Yeah, Texas is is ripe ripe for opportunity with passenger rail. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take the next question and then we'll have to close. Hi, uh, my name is John and uh, thank you for all of you being here and it was a really great talk. And I, I, do, I have a, two questions. So I'm curious about the bullet train, if Amtrak has any uh, plan with the bullet train because uh, I think that has been a conversation outside of US but last time I checked, you know, there's not much things going around with the high speed trail. And the second thing here is every time I try, so I'm a big fan of the railroad, so I'm trying to use Amtrak, but it always more expensive or it takes way longer. So would it be the, the good use case for me to take the Amtrak if, or like in, the, in terms of the business perspective? Thank you. Sure, so, so two parts to that. And the first, in terms of the bullet train, we are continually looking at opportunities for exclusive corridors for, for high-speed rail within the US. And so, as, as you probably know, and why it takes 16 hours is a lot of our right-of-way outside of the Northeast Corridor is owned by others. And so, that's why we are governed to the speeds where we are. But if there are opportunities for new, exclusive, dedicated tracks for other high-speed technologies, we are very much open to, to um, exploring and potentially pursuing those types of opportunities. In terms of the business case and what, you know, what compels you, it is, there, there's, um, 
one of the things afloat at Amtrak right now is, is affecting mode shift, getting more people on the train. And it, 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 is, it, it is a tougher sell from when it's not auto competitive, when it's, um, you know, there may be inner city buses. And it, it, we are looking at corridors where there is the population to warrant increased service, um, not only in speed, so that reduces trip time, but also more frequencies. Because if the train comes through your town once a day and it's in the middle of the night, that's not the most convenient time for you to catch the train. So um, we do see the value in certain market segments where it is beneficial, um, you know, competitive with auto or air. And think about it in terms of the productivity of your time and being able to work or relax while on enjoying your train ride. Maybe just adding from an industry perspective, also what Ulrich said, I think we can also add at least mid and long term with technology innovations and also from an Ulrich perspective or a consulting perspective to revisit how we're de delivering and structuring projects in the United States. We want to be part of making rail more cost effective so that at the end of the day the ticket is um, competitive. And I mean not competitive, competitive, but it, there's also added value of sitting on a train, checking your emails, working, or just taking a nap versus being on a plane or um, versus being in a car. Thank you so much. We will have to, to close the panel here, but thank you so much for attending. Uh, let's give a round of applause for our speakers.